Hi everyone, Will here. The episode you're about to hear with Michael Brooks was originally released on our Patreon page on April 19th, 2019, and we wanted to unlock it in tribute. The outpouring of memories and condolences on social media speaks to how beloved Michael Brooks was across the left and to the enormous influence he had on a generation of people. I'll quote a tribute by my friend and colleague Luke Savage who wrote, The news about Michael Brooks hits like a brick to the stomach. I'm proud to have known him and will never forget his kindness, sense of humor, and incredible international perspective he brought to his work. I'll miss him tremendously, and so will the entire socialist left. Less than 24 hours ago, Luke and I had exchanged emails with Michael to set up another appearance on the show to talk about his new book, From Zero Books, Against the Web, A Cosmopolitan Answer to the New Right, which, of course, we highly recommend you pick up. I'm sorry that this was not to be, but I hope that you enjoy this opportunity to revisit Michael doing one of the things he did best, which was making fun of Dave Rubin. Um, But is there a connection that maybe is something through Gamergate and everything else about that when you're playing games, right? And I, I, you know, I'm sort of back in now and I'm, what am I playing? I'm playing- uh, Axiom Verge. Axiom Verge. Made by my friend Tom Hat. Yeah, how cool. I was, I called you up. I'm like, I I finally found a game I like. You're like, oh yeah, my buddy created it. Like, yeah, awesome. So I'm playing this game. It's sort of like an old school Metroid. And you have to do a lot of the things repetitively to really figure it out. I had to FaceTime with you because I got stuck in these two stupid walls and okay, whatever. (laughs) But that you have to accomplish something in a video game. You have to keep trying to succeed. Yes, can you go to GameFAQs or can mm-hmm. you che- get the cheat code and all that stuff? You do, but it really is about you figuring out how to do all this stuff. And that, to me, sort of shows why the media, and especially the leftist media, hates games now or hates gamers. They don't like people who solve problems. Am I, am I, is this a bridge too far or am I onto something? I don't know, I haven't really thought, I have to think about it, I haven't really thought about it. I think I, there's something there. Gamers sure. wanna get shit done. Welcome to Michael and Us, I'm Will Sloan, here as always with. Luke Savage, hey everybody. We usually talk about film and television on this podcast, but the wild world of audiovisual entertainment is expanding at an, a rapid rate. <laughs> so many new platforms of discovery, so many new art forms are opening up. And one of those art forms is YouTube. Yeah, apparently a lot of people are watching TV now on the computer. It's crazy. I'm sure you folks have heard about the intellectual dark web, this uh, exciting new area it's a, it's of a, It's a subculture so transgressive it was recently profiled in the New York Times. People like Ben Shapiro, people like Jordan Peterson, people like, uh, I don't know, I can't keep them all in my head. <laughs> people who work primarily through the medium of YouTube, and one in particular that we're focusing on today, somebody who is basically unfamiliar to us before today, Dave Rubin. Good boy, Dave Rubin. We had a great conversation with an authority on all this, uh, Michael Brooks, host of The Michael Brooks Show, co-host of The Majority Report, uh, author of a forthcoming book on the intellectual dark web, a guy who is very prolific on YouTube, who understands these guys. Uh, he gave us a recommendation. That, that recommendation was good boy Dave Rubin. And we were not disappointed. We, had, we went down a whole Dave Rubin rabbit hole, and it was, uh, we were richly rewarded. Let's get into it. Well, my first question is, what do you have against facts and logic? Well, I mean, I think it, I, it should be obvious uh, that facts and logic are mostly marshaled by extremely annoying, unstylish people. So, uh, you know, it's basically all just aesthetic judgment. It's the same reason I generally don't like scientists. Uh, no. <laughs> are you yourself a gamer? I think we should establish that right right out of the I gate. Have, I have to be really out of the gate on this. And, so I, and there's, there's going to be a lot of unfairness in the whole premise of the book because I'm not a gamer. 
I don't have any STEM experience. I, uh, you know, this is not my world. Uh, you know, to be honest, I am a sort of, and this is the kind of answer I'm proposing in the book, but in some ways I really am a sort of cosmopolitan socialist uh, who's just looking on aghast at <laughs> this movement uh, and sort of what it's, the power it's accumulated online. But to, to answer more sin- sincerely for a minute, there, there was actually a, a video um, a couple of years ago by Zizek, and I, I forgot the context, but this was a, an example of him, I think, actually articulating something very well. And he was speaking to the kind of the right in Europe, and he was like, freedom of speech, openness, these things, like, they are under threat from you. And I think that the ways in which the terms facts and logic, they have been so radically distorted by two different groups of very problematic political actors, right? So my book is a little bit more geared towards addressing this intellectual dark web thing. But even there, you can see kind of two poles, right? There's the sort of Ben Shapiro that's very obvious, right? Like, I'm just going to use that terminology in the service of just basically forwarding AM talk radio far-right politics. And then there's also, even even though it's quite different, I mean, Sam Harris has some overlap with, you know, innate silver, you know, approach to understanding the world. I, uh, I think you see this in Andrew Yang to some extent. I know people, is another person that people get very triggered and obsessive over. But, you know, the notion that all over the place here, but they're not using Hume for what it's worth. There is auth distinction, right? That the idea that somehow objective realities, uh, first of all, that they are purely objective. We know it's usually a lot more complicated than that and definitely more complicated than that when you're dealing with politics. But just even more broadly, sort of even less controversial, uh, you know, empirical realities, but sort of like three plus three equals six kind of stuff can't actually do much to really tell us how we want the world to actually work, let alone answer, um, you know, the really serious questions. Uh, So, you know, where it gets into, uh, you know, the nitty gritty. and, And this is only one aspect of what I'm focusing on in my book. There's definitely a much bigger argument. But, you know, Sam Harris, right, when he had that sort of meltdown in the debate with Ezra Klein. And, you know, Ezra Klein, it was quite funny because obviously Ezra Klein is certainly not, you know, this is not our politics. Yeah. But that moment when, you know, when Ezra Klein was saying essentially, you know, hey, go with me here for a minute and and postulate the fact that, you know, throughout modern history, going back to the Enlightenment project and correlating with European empires, there's been a lot of uh, guys, you know, then in powdered wigs and now on podcasts who have been, you know, white guys at the center of global hegemony who have said, oh, well, you know, we just found a really sound scientific categorizing system for explaining why people from other uh, places are... Yeah, it has to, do, has to do with the size of our sizes of people's skulls. <laughs> right, right. And right, exactly. And, and he was saying that. And, you know, what was incredible was that Harris, instead of frankly the the savvier move, which would have been to sort of absorb the point and then ignore it and go back to his Ballywick, which still would have been wrong, but would have been less revealing. He just goes, and I'm paraphrasing, but like the history is irrelevant. And I actually think that that could be the sort of subtitle of all of the work that comes out of that community. And the other reason just briefly that I think it's important to write about them is because I think that even if this sort of particular brand 
of the IDW goes away and you know, new YouTube channels get more popular or different podcast configurations come into place and that brand sort of cools off. I do think that the forms of argumentation you're seeing from those people are basically going to be like, that's the template for all kind of like purely overtly white nationalist or purely overtly religious centric or purely overtly just oligarchic right-wing politics that we're going to be dealing with. And I'm not saying that the IDW isn't, I think it happens to in some ways be all of those things, but I'm saying if there's going to be a form of argumentation that is presented in the main culture as centrist, yeah. or center-right, or moderate, or commonsensical, that reinforces all of these various, well, bad ideas, it's going to come in that sort of vehicle. So kind of to establish some of our terms here for, for listeners who may be unfamiliar with Dave Rubin or you know, even with Sam Harris and Joe Rogan and Shapiro, would it be fair to say, I mean, my impression of all these guys, you know, Will and I think are a bit less familiar with them than you are, Michael, but that they all occupy a sort of niche where, you know, they're doing right-wing culture war stuff, but, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not MAGA guys, you know, they're trying to, some of them even sort of talk like they're sort of conservative movement in exile or whatever. Dave Rubin, of course, voted for Gary Johnson. Um, so do you think that would be an, an accurate description of the, the cultural niche that they, that they fill? Yeah, I think that that's a decent, I think that that's pretty good. I mean, it's, it really runs the gamut. And what's interesting is, you know, I mean, Sam Harris would probably still be very insistent that he's, you know, some sort of Democrat. Right. Uh, Rogan, who's obviously like the most just kind of personally appealing and talented of them, but clearly has been a conduit for a lot of garbage politics. He always likes to kind of, you know, he'll go on a rant every uh, couple of months, it seems like, where he'll sort of reassert that he's, you know, much more liberal in his words. You know, I think it's a couple of things, right? I, I think in, in some cases, like, sure, Ben Shapiro, I Yes, he's opposed to Trump. But I mean, you know, the guy is a total, he's just a completely- is he still standard. opposed to Trump? Exactly. I mean, I could barely even tell you. I don't know if he's done like the formal flip back to Trump, but I mean, you know, for all intents and purposes, Ben Shapiro is just a far right propagandist that he has been literally since he was a child. And, you know, that should obviously tell you something about the nature of this group, Right. I mean, one of the things that's that's very interesting, right, is this idea that like, oh, well, we need to everything on the table and everything on the table, you know, basically means like, well, you know, certain races could be intellectually inferior or, or <laughs> women could not be equipped to be scientists or whatever. You know, the funny paradox, of course, is that if they really, you know, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one example of this and loop back to to solidify the the question the answer rather but you know there's a guy thaddeus russell i don't know if you guys are familiar with and he's a he's a I um, I am. <laughs> it's a great name i would say he's numbered he's actually i have to say he's a very nice guy hosted me on his show and i have to i his politics are some he's a i would say sort of i would say somewhere along the spectrum of libertarian with the fact that he did grow up in a marxist household so occasionally that comes through 
And fundamentally, he's really a postmodernist, like not in the way that that term gets thrown around, right? Like he might be someone who would be more along the lines of not even making like the gender versus sex distinction, but even trying to say that even just bodies itself are purely culturally constructed. So what's interesting is he's got some overlaps with the dark web for sure in terms of, you know, he left the academy, he's annoyed by political correctness, he's got all this other stuff. But I think because, you know, he thinks IQ is bullshit and because he triggered Rogan on like gender, he's like not in the scene. Right. Right. And I don't know all of the reasons why. And I'm speculating here. And as I say, I mean, I, I actually had a very fun conversation with Thaddeus and we had massive, obvious, huge disagreements. And then we actually kind of congealed around critiquing Harris. He has a lot of problems with Harris. But I just think that that's very interesting. Right. Like, oh, everything is on the table. But even a guy who actually shares a lot of our preoccupations, who's, you know, pretty to the right in some ways, but is you know, a genuine full-on postmodernist. So looks at, you know, all of this stuff that are sort of our basic ballywicks in a totally different way. He's not in the scene in the same way. Uh, so the game is the rhetoric of openness and the rhetoric of kind of like no holds barred intellectual inquiry. And what I find fascinating is I think, you know, there's very few people in the culture who I think really do hold an attitude like that. Like I would say my publisher, Doug Lane, who is a Marxist, right? He's probably the closest person I know to somebody who really is just ready to entertain ideas, right? Very broadly and non-polemically. Not that he doesn't have an opinion and analysis, but these guys have this frame. And, and I think that that's what's more important than how they are vis-a-vis Trump, frankly. This idea that, well, there are all of these ideas and they're being suppressed in the culture and we can't talk about them. So let's just go on our shows and talk about them again and again and again and again. And the fusion is definitely some combination of either, you know, trying to retrieve and normalize truly loathsome and disgusting and discredited ideas, or it's things that actually people don't find particularly controversial, but they're claiming they're controversial or it's things that are really toxic, but are in fact totally mainstream. Like, wow, how brave to be a, you know, public intellectual in the Western world that basically (laughs) thinks Silicon Valley is pretty cool. And (laughs) right, right. I've heard you describe Ruben's appeal as he's confirmation bias with the fake allure of challenge. Yeah, that's, yeah. And I think that that's particularly Harris. I mean, I have to say like Dave Rubin is almost, I mean, he's so unequipped and he's so dumb. You know, when he first kind of bounced on the scene and left the Young Turks, it was all sort of like, well, I'm an atheist and, uh, you know, we need to talk about ideas and, uh, you know, I'm a classical liberal. But now I think as these, even inside that scene, these markets have bifurcated. I mean, I think Dave's show, you know, he's had on so many just really odious figures that certainly I would say, in my view, Harris is on a continuum and flirtation with even indirectly. But, you know, Ruben just has on Stefan Molyneux or right. I mean any number of, of, you know, just purely alt-right figures and basically just lets them 
all alt right in my opinion. I don't know how Molyneux identifies himself, but very very extremist figures with really reactionary views, and he just lets them articulate themselves. And with the Prager U and the other stuff, I I, I think you know it, it, the mask has sort of come off where they're coming from, particularly in the last year. Uh, but they're still playing to different brands' positions. I think you know Sam Harris is sort of doing why can't the world be the new republic in the early '90s? And then of course there's the whole Peterson dimension, which is a whole other bizarre thing. <laughs> When we're off camera, we're actually talking about the exact same things. <laughs> like we are lit. Whether this camera was on right now or off, like we're living this thing all the time. I can speak from my own experience in this regard. It's made me a better person, and I will. And I'm still striving How? to be a better. How? I'm more authentic. I'm more honest. No, nope. uh, Luke and I were kind of gorging on clips of Dave Rubin before this <laughs> conversation, and uh, I have to say, I don't, I don't quite get it. You know, I, I get Joe Rogan more. He's well, he of course. Foster says this like open-minded, sweet guy who just wants to hear stuff. I get Ben Shapiro because he owns people epically, uh, and Jordan Peterson is daddy. But I don't. I, I, could you explain why people like Dave Rubin? Yeah, what is his audience? I I I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm totally flummoxed by it. I find liking Shapiro to be pretty mystifying myself, to be honest with you. I don't. I I find it all mystifying. But yeah, really. But I mean, yeah. I mean, except for Rogan. I mean, Rogan definitely has you know just appeal as a host. But Ruben, I just yeah, I don't. I mean, he because he's so dumb. And, and like it's just one thing that I don't fully get is you know we obviously watched you know him in kind of digestible form we watched about maybe twenty or thirty minutes of the the great episode with the gamers quote which we absolutely have to talk about in a few minutes but these are like two and a half hour shows they're filmed in this. I mean, God, his studio is incredible. His just, studio looks like, you know, like Chris Hardwick should come out at any point and start talking about The Walking Dead. <laughs> <laughs> There's like a basketball right. in the background and kind of exposed brick. There are all these markers of like what a dumb guy thinks sophistication looks like. Yeah. Um, but totally. you know, the shows are like two and a half hours long and I just don't know who is sitting through this. Like who, like, is it people gaming, you know? I mean, I do, I think... You know, to the extent that I've heard, and, and this is another really funny paradox of these people, right? They have this simultaneous, like, commitment to, you know, what in actuality is like very vicious political positions, in my opinion, right? Very social Darwinistic yeah. politics. They make a big show of like beating their chests about you know we should be able to talk about ideas and all of this stuff and then on the other hand they and their audiences are at least their audiences from you know my experience are enormously sensitive right yeah. so it it's like this kind of weird you know because i because when i've seen people defending dave like in comment sections or something it's never You know, I, mean, I think the ship has mostly sailed on people trying to say that he's like smart or an insightful interviewer. <laughs> But it's all like, well, you know, you guys are assholes or you're jealous of his numbers. And why would he want to talk to you? You're mean. And, you know, it's like funny because to me, it's sort of like all like, I guess, you know, like fair enough. I mean, we do all sometimes make calculations like that. And sure. But 
you know, some of us have not built our whole brands on this idea that, you know, like every conversation is worth having and, and this sort of thing. So I, I think a lot of these guys, audiences float in between a sort of internet machismo about really nerdy shit and then also have like an enormous amount of sensitivity and ironically like an, an inability to distinguish between in fact actually like critiquing ideas or in fact even just like being funny like I'm, I have, I have a lot of critiques of cancel culture and of moralism generally on the left. And I think that like, there needs to be actually a much more sort of like empathetic and compassionate culture. Right. And for partially actually, because I think we really need to like save our ammo for the actual small amount of cases of people who really do need to be destroyed. And I make no bones about that. And frankly, let's be real. Like those people are not ever you know, people that you're bickering with on Twitter, right? They're, they're people who have like power. You know, the other component of it though is like, I hold those views and I also feel like, you know, like polemics are fun and satire and ad homs and whatever. Like if it's, you know, it's fun and sometimes richly well-deserved. And it's just incredible the extent to which they cultivate an audience that is so self-serious. And I, apparently they are too. I mean, Dave had that whole thing with Sam Cedar, right? Where he's constantly going on about how, you know, the left won't debate me, the left won't debate me. And <laughs> Sam, you know, slides right up like, a, you know, Sam's sort of like greatest joy in life is debating idiots. Whether they are well-known or not, Sam's, you know, I'll debate you. And you could just see like the panic, like, oh my God, like, how am I? Because, you know, Dave is, you know, I think he's obviously extraordinarily stupid, but he's, you know, he's smart enough to realize that that would be a total catastrophe if that actually happened. And so then a video just happened to get posted that, that I did, and I didn't write this title, but I think it's a fine title, something like Dave Rubin, Professionally Stupid. And Rubin just took like, oh, you know, well, I won't be engaging with you anymore. And again, it's like, you know, fair enough, but I thought you sort of like, you know, you've built your whole brand on like, ooh, like people can't take comedy anymore. Like, why are you so tight? You know, and it's like, it, it's just, it's funny. But I, I think there's something to that. I think there's something to the emotional paradox of the, of the audience. Free speech is a recurring issue on his show. Uh, Luke and I watched a clip where he was talking about you remember the Kathy Griffin controversy where Kathy Griffin posed with a like Trump oh, yeah. severed head or something right, and right. gave this sort of libertarian take on it, threading this needle of, you know, Kathy Griffin is allowed to do whatever she wants and, and she's an artist and a comedian and a provocateur and we should respect that. But it's entirely within CNN's right as to, her employer to fire her. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's like the the libertarian take on free speech. Well, what's funny is like, right. And then, but then I, I don't remember, but I would assume he was quite upset about what happened to Roseanne Barr, right. right? When Roseanne Barr was fired for those, you know, racist tweets about Valerie Jarrett. As or with if all anyone drags these- someone online for their bad tweet or their bad uh, New York Times op-ed piece. That's probably right. to him another example of like liberal censorship. Right. That, that's the very interesting thing, right? Is that this sort of free speech thing is number one, it never has anything to do with like 
actual and because I'm more receptive than others, frankly, to like, okay, we can expand the definition of how we use that term, I guess, beyond just specific legal attacks on free speech. But that being said, if your whole ballywick is freedom of speech, like you would have to be doing shows every week on like the Israel bill, right? On BDS, you know, yeah, like that, that is a literal act of state suppression of free speech. So then there's like actual free speech issues in the actual public domain that are actual legal threats. And they have nothing to say about that stuff generally. Then there's the, you know, middle ground of that sort of like, well, okay, like, people getting dragged or the, you know, cultural spaces and how people relate to speech and that sure, you know, I think we could have a conversation about that. And, and then of course the sort of third point, that's very funny to me. And sometimes, you know, sometimes people will, you know, once, once they get kicked off of these platforms, they will all of a sudden become like born again Marxists and say like, Hey, like Twitter is a public utility. Like, <laughs> yeah. And that's a whole other question of like, and, and, you know, but of course, like the easiest content and the content that is of the brands they're building is all just, you know, it's like, hey, did you hear that some kids did something dumb at Oberlin or whatever? Western civilizations over. Right. Uh, the crisis of free speech on college, college campuses uh, is one of his favorite topics. Right. That's it. And, and one of the things that's so funny about that to me is that I probably find a handful of departments within a handful of campuses where it's like, okay, I get it. This is pretty annoying. <laughs> and it has no bear. I mean, first of all, what's fascinating is like, I asked a friend of mine who teaches at Missouri State University. And I was like, yeah, I bet I, I was you know, not being serious, but I was like, I bet there's a lot of, uh, you know, I bet the left is just totally out of control. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, like the campus Democrats, like organizing, like door knocking for Clara McCaskill or just like. <laughs> <laughs> so what's funny about that conversation to me is it's also such an incredibly geographically specified. Even that is such an argument within elite spaces because it almost always is like somebody in a studio or editorial room in New York or L.A. bitching about something that happened in New Haven. That's that's my impression of the source of a lot of this stuff. I mean, as with so many things in adult life, it seems to go like adult political life. It seems to go back to campus. It, it's as you said, it's it's conservatives who are, you know, in society, often very privileged people, you know, often young white men at Ivy League campuses where politically they're in a minority there because they're, you know, a bit more conservative or in some cases much more conservative than the people around them. And they're able to assemble a whole kind of architecture of victimhood on the basis of that. You know, it's like kind of uh, that style of conservative that maybe has a column in the New York Times. And then every one of their columns begins with an anecdote about how some lib friend of theirs got triggered at a dinner party because they said something about how, I don't know, traditional marriage was good or, so, you know, something like that. And it's this whole, you know, it's this whole kind of way of drawing victimhood out of, in fact, being, you know, comparably very like socially powerful and that there seems to be an analog between that and the audiences for uh, for a lot of these uh, so-called dark web guys oh yeah i mean there's no doubt about that i think on the other hand you know i i do think that i i am one of these you know lefty socialists who has a problem with some aspects of 
left discourse. And part of the reason I have a problem with it is because I do think it opens lanes for these figures, right? A great irony to me is that one of the first areas I tackled really seriously politically, just in terms of me trying to figure out as a person, my, as a young person myself and reading a lot of books and so on, was terrorism and U.S. policy in South Asia and the Middle East and how groups like Al-Qaeda form and so on. And I remember a great piece or a line, in fact, I don't remember the rest of the piece, but he said it was something to the effect of like, causes are not justifications, right? And I think this is a really hard thing on the left because when I'm critiquing things on the left that I think are uh, you know, problematic in terms of cultural posture or in terms of how people relate to speech or so on, first of all, there's no equivalency between a misguided in my view, a wrongheaded effort to, as an example, fight something like racism versus somebody who would deny racism, right? There's right, no right. moral equivalence there, even if somebody's making a mistake in my view. So, you know, it's very important to address some of the genuine weaknesses in our side so that people who are uh, just trash, in my opinion, can't exploit them. But I do think, I mean, yes, I think to your point in general, a lot of these conversations, it, it's hard to imagine one way or another that they have much salience in a very broad category of quote unquote normal existence, by which I mean, like, you know what I mean? Like most yeah. people have not gone to elite colleges. Most people are not obsessed and have the luxury of a bunch of like kind of, you know, obscure debates online. And in fact, I think that's, the other part of the answer to these people is like having a politics that's actually about real things. Um, yeah, ma as always, mass politics is, a, is the best right. response to the right. Now, interestingly, in this case, it was the right calling for CNN to fire Griffin, and it was the left that was defending her, although they were doing it a bit less than usual. While this is a flip on the script of the last few years, it's important to remember it seems people only hold their values when it's easy to do so. Just imagine if it had been a conservative comedian like Tim Allen holding up a severed head of President Obama. The left would have been demanding his show be canceled and the right would have been defending him. Ironically, Tim Allen's highly rated show was canceled a couple weeks ago and many people think that it is at least partially because he's been an outspoken conservative in Hollywood. Ruben, uh, like so many of these people, defines himself as a classical liberal. Um, <laughs> I, I am curious, are you able to provide some context about what his intellectual journey to that position is? I know that- You're asking such mean questions. <laughs> <laughs> he has, I guess, uh, said certain statements that are sort of fuzzily in favor of single-payer health care. You know, he's also very quick to threaten libel lawsuits. Uh, I would just like to know what the contours of his political imagination are, <laughs> if that can be answered. I mean, I mean, and, you know, I, uh, let me put it this way. I've, I do a lot of stuff with uh, Anna Kasparian at the Young Turks, and she's great. And uh, she worked with Dave. And uh, her read is that this is a dumb guy who's extremely money focused. And as in pretty much all things, I trust her journalistic uh, assessment. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, you know, honestly, I just, I don't, I think, you know, this is why he's the one, like in this book, you know, I'll just sort of briefly, I mean, I'm, I'm explaining the context, like I said, of like, 
This is why I think dealing with this group matters even beyond them and of themselves. Then I think the basic juxtaposition, I would say, between the, the right and the left is that the right mythologizes and the left historicizes. And then I deal in that framework chapter by chapter with Harris, Peterson, and Shapiro. And then in the response, I sort of am advocating this, this uh, cosmopolitan socialist position, which I think can both rematerialize politics, deal with the very vital so-called cultural issues without falling into the traps of either reductionism or um, basically just like pure positionality politics and moralism. And so that's what I'm doing in the book. And that's a roundabout way of saying I'm trying to take some of this pretty seriously and the stuff with Ruben, it's like, uh, you know, he's a fucking idiot. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't, this, is pro- this is a good moment like, for. Like, I mean, I saw him, you know, I mean, I think he was on at some show a couple years ago. And he hasn't said that he supports single payer for a while. And I am not convinced from his explanations of what single payer is that he understands. <laughs> like, I'm, I, I mean that very sincerely. This is not a guy who. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he, he doesn't have a coherent uh, politics or a well. Well, I mean, it's definitely. I would say clearly not in the sense you're asking, but I think that there is a politics of you know he he is a vehicle for this type of kind of reactive, reductive politics, and maybe in some ways he's a good vehicle for that because he is just this sort of like blank nothing slate well uh he does however have some pretty coherent politics when it comes to gaming and i think this would be a good time uh, so so before we bring up you know the the money quote um which i think we're going to actually open the show with you know i just searched dave rubin gaming and then i found a tweet of his from march of 2018 where he's responding to it looks like they did a, a segment on fox news the headline was president trump to meet with video game executives over school violence and dave rubin tags Trump and he says, hey, at real Donald Trump, video games do not cause violence. At most, they encourage you to eat magic mushrooms because of Super Mario, but that's it. You can swap this joke for an Adderall Sonic reference if you're more of a saga person. So I, I, I love I love that. Uh, um, that. That is very funny because he seems to very sincerely not grasp the fact that Trump is meeting with these executives so as not to talk about guns. <laughs> like that doesn't seem to occur to him. He actually thinks this might be an assault on the gaming industry. So the quote that's going around, I'm just going to read it one more time. We'll play it off the top of the show. But uh, this was the quote. Um, you have to ac- accomplish something in a video game. You have to keep trying to succeed. That sort of shows why the media and the leftist media hates games and gamers. They don't like people who solve problems. Now, it le- cuts off. It, it cuts off. Like the quote as it's been circulating cuts off. But there's an even better part after where he 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 gestures at the guy he's talking to and he sort of says, uh, is, is that a bridge too far? Uh, am, am I on to something? Am I on to something here? And even, even the other guy. He goes, he goes, no, no, I really think, and what's funny is the guy uh, kind of does the like, he demurs. Normal. He doesn't want to commit to it. <laughs> right. He does like the normal human response to Dave thinking, which is like, eh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's sure. <laughs> And then Dave's like, no, no, I really think I'm onto something here because because <laughs> you're after you're solving problems, you're cracking codes. Now, one of the parts I find most funny about this, and of course, you know, in my total pettiness, uh, we literally did like a probably like a 20 minute play by play of this on my. Oh, show. we oh we we watched <laughs> right, yeah. But uh, yeah, I had a 
Felix from chapter one to because he's someone who can match my my dickishness. And, and so the whole spiel about how like gamers want to solve problems and they won't sure there might be a cheat code or whatever, but at the end of the day, they're just like in there, you know, like at their consoles, like making stuff happen. The cheat code is having your parents' money. <laughs> right. I mean, well, so, I mean, setting aside, well, as what's great about Dave is that Dave always gives you, there's the first response, which is like, okay, that sounds absolutely ludicrous. But then he always gives you something even more. So he's basically saying he hasn't really played video games before, but he was calling the guy on the phone who was the guest to help him get through a <laughs> part of the video game yeah they were facetiming like, wait a second <laughs> even your own fucking analogy which is already like just totally crackpot nonsense which you're saying to like and i think this explains the done things i think that's pure audience flattery so i think like even to go to you know i think that that's just like no you should be you should be playing video games all day and maybe i don't know like you know, that's why the left, they don't want people uh, sending death threats on Reddit and things, <laughs> you know, because you're accomplishing things. But it was like, okay, so gamers through like rugged individuality in their parents' basement of like 12 hours staring at a screen are quote unquote solving problems. <laughs> and yet you just, in your own analogy, apparently you need to FaceTime your friends to get like actually solidarity or maybe a handout to get through a difficult part of the game. Sounds like I, I to me. Beautiful. It was, it was like incredible. It was like he's doing this whole fucking wind up and the whole subtext is just like, yeah, I actually had to call you because I didn't understand what was going on. The right <laughs> seems to have uh, a bit of a stranglehold on YouTube right now. How did we get to that situation and how might we fight it? There's a lot. I don't exactly know why it happened. I mean, I think clearly the algorithm games, you know, are bad. At the base of all of these things is just like the market logic of these companies, right? So it's like when you say like, why doesn't Twitter throw off like some Nazi account? It's like, yes, no doubt. I'm sure that part of the reason is because there's an insensitivity to some of these issues in work cultures of these companies for sure. And that's like, you know, where the liberals go. But where I go is these places, these videos, this content is great for the algorithm. Gets a lot of uh, attention. It gets a lot of clicks. Gets a lot of views. And and I also don't think. I mean, I think the other thing that I'm sure is disturbing is I real. I think some of these, you know, particularly odious views are probably, you know, they're at the very least very well known and very distributed in Silicon Valley. And someone like uh, Corey Pine, my friend Corey Pine's written on this stuff really well and really effectively. And, and I think, you know, I do think honorable exceptions. I think the Young Turks do good stuff. I think the majority report, I think we do good stuff. I think, you know, there's a lot of people who've been on, I don't want to mention all of them, but they're, you know, because I, I'll, I'll exclude people. So I'll just mention the two that I have some, I mean, one I work for every day and the other I've just on my mind because we've been doing a lot of work together. But that being said, I think that there w there has always been good progressive content on YouTube, but I also think that more broadly, you know, particularly several years ago, you did have a situation where the quote unquote left was represented in most media as either just sort of like purely adjacent to the leadership of the Democratic Party or frankly, somewhere on that continuum. And obviously on some issues, that's very, we're, course, very important fights and progress on 
expanding inclusion and rights, I would argue in certain areas, not really in a substantive way, obviously, because of, you know, these were not taking on fundamental structural issues of things like policing or something like that. Um, but, you know, a, a definitely a real acquiescence to the prevailing economic order, right? So I think you get a lot of YouTube uh, content, which is arising at the nexus of, in the sense that we can do something about, and I think we've started to do something about, not having any sort of pop culture or accessible version of a more broadly materialist analysis of politics that actually fits in a broad set of people's lives. And then on the other hand, and I don't know what we can do about this, you know, the fact that there's obviously a huge amount of misogynist and racist and so on attitudes and these people migrated to the new platforms and understood them well and used them effectively. So I think part of fighting back is, you know, being on those platforms and providing content that is, you know, just frankly more relevant and, you know, speaks to a broader set of conditions and problems. And I think also the other thing too is also takes on some of those people pretty directly. You know, as Ben Burgess would say in uh, Logic for the Left, which is a great book, you know, it's like definitely mock these people like someone like me does. At times, certainly, you know, morally condemn them as we all do. But at the same time, we also are gonna need to um, argue with them and fight them, not because we think we'll persuade them and not because we're in some type of like, diluted liberal ideational persuasion space, but because unlike in the electoral realm, it does actually seem like in these social spaces, there, there are some kind of like chunks of swing voters hmm. who need to be appealed to. And, uh, and, and that matters. If you heard a siren in the background, that's because these ideas are too dangerous. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, hey Dave, this is a very brave move on your part. Kudos. Have you heard about the SJW nonsense? Uh, I, 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 I don't even care about those guys. Does It really just uh, honestly doesn't matter. Uh, viva la free speech. Good luck, Dave. Fuck you, Patreon. All right, I'm reading these live. Do you have any favorite YouTubers, kind of underrated YouTubers that people should check out? Uh, I'm talking about uh, ironic YouTubers. <laughs> people you like to laugh at. The sword guy's pretty good. What's his name? The Is it yeah. Sodding Gamer? I think so. I had never heard of that guy until Felix brought him to my attention. <laughs> Honestly, it's so like, because it's work. It's <laughs> right. like, Fair oh, enough. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, I just want to watch like a game or like go outside. Well, I, I used to, uh, so I used to do a lot of reporting on, on the kind of online right here in Canada, especially. And among other things, it permanently broke my YouTube algorithm. Oh God. So, because, you know, you watch one video of like Dave Rubin or whatever. And then it's just everything in your, in your suggestions is like Ben Shapiro totally destroys vegan SJW cuck or whatever. Jordan Peterson on the Jewish question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I, yeah, to me, I can't sit through the shows anymore, but there's a lot of very clippable Dave Rubin. Like there's another one, which actually we're going to, we're, you know, next week I'm going to be in LA and we're doing a live show in LA. And one of the, the sketch that we're sort of preparing for it is going to be a hybrid of like an of an actual sketch, but like Matt caught this clip of basically like, I mean, essentially like Ruben sort of like intimating to Ben Shapiro that it's like pretty much time to start suing people. 
which <laughs> is in a broader sense. I mean, again, it's of course like deeply ironic, uh, scary, and then also like very revealing, but also just fucking hysterical because it's like, yeah, no, like I'm the free market guy, but it might be that government is the only way to get people to stop calling me stupid. Not <laughs> like, like the only path. No, no, no. Like, bear with me for a second. Like, is this a bridge be, too far? Yeah, is this a bridge too far that we will say that, that I'm an empty-headed moron? Like, I, I mean, I, you know, you know, I'm generally, I mean, I'm interested in ideas, but might be time to start suing people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's he's really funny, but I would say in general, I, the only other guy. I mean, I. Well, this, this though was destroyed for me because, you know, I think like everybody else, there was like a little bit of the like, what's uh, Gavin McGinnis's deal? Right. Uh-huh. Not because like, I really care about Vice or think that Vice is like, I mean, Vice is a pretty dated property in a lot of ways. And not that I, you know, I certainly never saw Gavin and thought he was like particularly entertaining or anything, but there was the element of, I get that. For some of these people, it's like this is it. This is exact. This is the only way that they are going to have any type of following, right? And Gavin McGinnis was like a guy who totally had success and access in a way that was like not limited to these success pools. So that was sort of like interesting. Like, what's the deal? I listened to his podcast on the Buju Banton case, which was fascinating and he was basically he's a great reggae artist very controversial but very great who went to jail he just got out of jail he was in jail for seven years for definitely like a essentially i would say like an entrapment drug charge and gavin is like a fan of buju and did actually like a pretty good breakdown of the case and i was kind of like this is so like why is he telling the story and he told it pretty well and i agreed with him and and then he pivoted to sort of like turn it into a lesson about not believing media reports about the Proud Boys. And I was like, oh. Okay. <laughs> but uh, but he was like the only guy that I had I had a little bit of like a huh. What? But even then, honestly, it just was like, all right, I don't know, like whatever. Like my speculation is is that he's just a drunk. Like, okay. <laughs> you know, it's like another drunk asshole. Well, Gavin McInnes didn't really seem to have you know. any politics in his vice days. He was just sort of a, a malcontent contrarian for the sake of it. And there are only so many directions you can take that. Well, and I, and I think that's true. But I also think that you can probably link, you know, the, another sort of interesting thing about understanding these guys and disaggregating the cultural moment is like, there's one trajectory into all of this stuff that really is just like Vice and Opie and Anthony. And, you know, look, Opie and Anthony, I mean, definitely, uh, Anthony is incredibly bigoted. Um, yeah. I mean, this is though, it's funny because the IDW is like very self-consciously like sincere and earnest. So this is different, but obviously I mean, a lot of people, you know, the uses and misuses of irony and double speak. <laughs> and so there's a way in which I wonder if almost you could look at a figure like Gavin and it's almost like on one hand you could say, okay, this is just like a continuation of the same sort of contrarian provocateur bullshit. The other way you could read it is like, oh, like this also might mean that like white nationalism is in vice's Genesis. Like, like yeah. there's a lot of different ways to, to kind of read how that works out, you know? 
Well, when I think of Vice, you know, Vice is a magazine that was popular in the 90s at that sort of end of history moment when it just had this sort of like free-floating anger, um, this free-floating cynicism. But if it had any targets, it was just the politically correct and the the blue-haired ladies and, and those sorts of people. Howard Stern has a little bit of that too. He doesn't really have any political agenda per se, except uh, offense for the sake of it. Well, though, what's interesting is that Stern has actually, and I'm not, you know, there's definitely some stuff Stern will say about like Israel, for example, that I think is appalling. But he, He's basically a Democrat. Yeah, I think he's basically a Democrat. And he's actually, what's been interesting about him is, is watching him just sort of accept and evolve, like in a way that isn't necessarily always that interesting. But it's like, he's kind of just being like, look, I'm fucking worth hundreds of millions of dollars. I want to do like long form interviews with my favorite rock stars. And I'm not even like going to pretend that I'm like, I'm not the same guy I was in the 80s and 90s. And that just is what it is. I think, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think when you go and you, like, as I do sometimes, particularly with Stern, because I am a Stern fan, like, just listen to, like, old shows from the 90s or have a sense of things like Vice. Like, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of, like, all this agita and rebellion in the context of, you know, of course, not for, like, the peripheries and not not broadly. But on the other hand, I mean relative to today obviously just much more sort of broad-based prosperity i mean just even listening like you're just like oh my god like they're doing this on the radio there's no ad spots for like yeah you know like him to make millions of dollars and the company to make money and like jesus christ like everything is just kind of humming it's a terrible book because david brooks has no like you know david brooks is like a wafer thin analyst but he is actually what's funny about him is i think he does have a certain ability to kind of observe culture on a pop level and he wrote a book in the late 90s called bobos in paradise and it was all basically like the 90s was the fusion of 60s and 80s oh my god i can't believe i've never heard of this i'm gonna like i'm gonna gonna read well you know what's funny is like again it's politically it's ridiculous like politically he's pretty much like isn't this cool like i'm a republican i love bob dylan you know like that's (laughs) actually like what the book is but it's it's true though that like the elite of the 90s and the conversation of the 90s was like like especially from a boomer it's like maybe i protested in the 60s i like shaved my beard, put on a suit, voted for Reagan, made money in the 80s. And now in the 90s, like, I know it's not that I want to, like, get good politics or protest again. I don't know. Like, maybe I want to think of my internet company as being revolutionary. Or maybe I want to, like, you know, use, I mean, Apple, right? Like, maybe I want to use Gandhi and John Lennon and my ads. You know, maybe I want uh, this product launch to be filled with Dylan quotes, right? And he does a pretty good job of basically showing that, like, you know, pretty much, like, especially in the late 90s, all of the leadership class of the United States could basically fit this category. You know, I mean, most extreme people like Clinton and Gore, but even someone like Gingrich kind of could. And it's like, yeah, sounds about right, actually. And your problem is you think this is kind of cool and uh, everybody else thinks fucking appalling. (laughs) (laughs) That might be a good sentiment for us to conclude on. I think summing up 
maybe the general ethos of this conversation. Michael, is there anything uh, besides your book, which we look forward to? Is there anything else that you want to plug? Anything you've got coming up? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know if you're running this and this is a stretch, but I will be uh, live April 20th at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles with the Michael Brooks Show and special guests, uh, Wozni Lombre, Anna Kasparian, and Nando Vila. Um, but besides that, I mean, yeah, find me on Twitter, go to patreon.com slash TMBS for the show or Michael Brooks Show on YouTube or iTunes, and uh, you can find my work. All right. Well, Michael Brooks, host of The Michael Brooks Show, co-host of The Majority Report, author of a forthcoming book on the intellectual dark web. Thanks so much for joining us, man. This was awesome. I really appreciate it, guys. This was great. Thank you. Thanks again to Michael Brooks for joining us. A lot of great recommendations in that conversation to screw up your YouTube algorithm for all time. Yeah, and my reading. I can't wait to check out that uh, that David Brooks book on the <laughs> 90s. Well, we better close before the thought police come for us. So. Yeah, if you guys heard a siren in the middle of uh, that episode, so that was uh, that was the thought police coming for us. Now watch this drive. I am gay and I voted for Obama. I am a shill for the Clinton campaign and the left wing mainstream press. I'm a pussy who gets fucked right up the ass I am a cock I am a libtard I'm a fag Who wants blacks to live amongst us Folks are all bad, but when the all right folks attack me, it makes me sad. I am a cut, I am a Save us all from douchebags just like me. I am a cut. I am a libtard. And a cut has no fun. And a libtard always cries.